Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Jane and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free, or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? Last week, we entered the lives of Jean Seberg and Jane Fonda by beginning at their beginnings. One humble, middle American and mundane, the other an idol of Hollywood royalty, shattered by tragedy. When we left them, Jean Seberg had been plucked out of obscurity by director Otto Preminger, and Jane Fonda was finally committing to her destiny as an actress. In today's stories, both young actresses will fall in with older male mentors who seek to control every aspect of their professional and personal lives. How Jean and Jane individually respond to and rebel against these mentors will set them on the paths that will lead to the films that would define their early careers. And in both cases, that path will take them to Paris. We'll start by exploring Seberg's experiences working with Preminger on two movies. Movies which made her an internationally known name, while also traumatizing her for life. Then, we'll catch up with Jane in New York, where she becomes the it girl of fashion magazines and the actor studio, takes up with her own hyper-controlling male partner, and tries to define herself as something other than Henry Fonda's daughter. Join us, won't you, for part two of Jean and Jane. Otto Preminger signed Jean Seberg to a seven-year contract. He'd cover all her living expenses, and in addition, she'd receive $400 a week for her first year. This salary would go up every year until by year seven, her weekly rate would top out at $2,500. 
That would have been equivalent to about $21,000 a week in today's dollars. An enormous amount of money for a teenager to imagine, and a huge incentive for Seberg to stay in Preminger's good graces for seven years. Even the $400 a week was an unusual amount of money for a 17-year-old. So Jean's father made sure her earnings were funneled into a bank account, which he controlled. He parceled out to his daughter just $25 of her earnings per week. When Preminger began his worldwide search for an actress to play Joan of Arc, he told journalists that he wanted to find an unknown, because Joan would have to seem like a blank slate, so that audiences could buy into her story without imposing onto the actress any associations they held from her previous performances. It's possible this was his real intention, although by the time St. Joan made it to theaters, audiences had been fed an extensive story about Jean Seberg's girl-next-door origins, which they surely brought into the theater with them. What seems clear is that the real result of Preminger having cast a total newbie was that he could treat her any way he wanted to, and she didn't know it wasn't normal. She didn't know she could say no, and she didn't know when it would have been appropriate for her to push back. United Artists, the studio paying for St. Joan, believed that the only way to get teenagers to see a filmic adaptation of a serious play would be to, as one executive put it, keep hammering home the Cinderella theme of Gene Seberg. The publicity push began with the moment of Gene's casting, which was announced with a press conference and an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, where she reenacted her audition scene for the TV audience, and the host referred to Jean as the girl who caught lightning in the bottle. On October 20th, 1956, the Los Angeles Times ran a photo of Preminger moving in for a cheek kiss on a laughing Jean. Her eyes are closed, He looks at the camera with what could be described as a proud leer. The fairy tale like story of Jean's discovery would ensure that St. Joan remained in the news for the entirety of its production, which commenced in late fall of 1956 in London. While this was one of the most hyped Hollywood films of the period, with Jean promoted as a miraculously found movie star before she had even filmed this movie about miracles. The wave of publicity never touched on what was really going on behind the scenes, or why Preminger had sought to cast this totally wet-behind-the-ears novice in the first place. In fact, at least one columnist, probably unwittingly, forwarded the false narrative that Seberg was on, quote, an easy road to martyrdom by comparing her to Falconetti, the star of Carl Dreyer's silent Joan of Arc film, who had been pushed by Dreyer to total suffering exhaustion. Seberg, wrote L.R. Swainson, is hardly likely to be reduced to a wreck by Preminger's methods. This statement suggests that Swainson knew little about Preminger or his methods. As it soon became clear to everyone involved with the production, except perhaps the terrified Jean, 
the quality Preminger had seen in Seberg that had made him want to cast her wasn't talent so much as it was her evident mutability. He sensed that through the right kind of psychological warfare, he could shape Jean Seberg into exactly what he wanted her to be. Part of the process involved intense training that kept her busy learning new things for every moment of every day, leaving her with no time to herself or time to be herself. Jean was given French lessons and diction classes to try to make her Midwestern accent sound more European, or at least neutral. She was taught to convincingly ride a horse by cantering for up to nine hours a day. Another part of Preminger's process was designed to make Jean feel insecure and overwhelmed. Part of this was accomplished merely by the location shoot, where Jean was the only young person in a mostly male cast that Preminger had stocked with great British theater actors, including John Gielgud. Jean was lonely, and she wrote four letters to John Maddox, her old boyfriend from Summerstock, with no response from him before she figured out that he was ghosting her out of insecurity over the sudden disparity between their professional situations. Preminger actively discouraged Jean from socializing during the shoot. When she had downtime, her director insisted she spend it alone in her dressing room, studying her script. She was not even allowed to go out at night for meals. What the press got to see of the way Preminger had taken over Jean's life was interpreted approvingly as paternalism. He was protecting his new discovery by keeping her isolated in her hotel room and supervising her every activity, including the frequent parading of her in front of the press. He was taking great care in shaping her star image and career, just as a studio would have done a decade earlier. The reporters didn't get to see Preminger aggressively pushing Jean through dozens of takes until she was at best totally confused about what she was supposed to be doing and at worst, sobbing hysterically. When asked about his methods directing Jean, Preminger denied that he was a Svengali. I tried to teach her to think, he said. Surely that is the opposite of Svengali. His trick was to ensure that his victim didn't think. I can't get out of Miss Seberg. What isn't there? The other, more experienced actors on set couldn't believe the way their director was treating the young ingenue. Gielgud noted that Seberg knew nothing about film acting and desperately wanted to learn, but instead of teaching Jean, Preminger berated her for what she didn't know. As another co-star, Richard Woodmark, put it, we all asked him to leave her alone. Nothing did any good. Maybe it was a test of toughness. But to me, it was sadism. The climax of the shoot was the scene in which Joan is burned at the stake, with Jean chained to the cross while the pyrotechnic effects went off. Something went wrong. I'm burning! Jean yelled, not in character. She broke free from the chains and curled up into a ball, covering her face. Her hands and stomach were singed before one of the actors playing executioner broke character and swooped her up and got her out of there. Privately, Preminger felt badly, but
but publicly, he bragged that this was the kind of accident a director like him dreamed of. We got all of it on film, he said. The camera took 400 extra feet. The crowd reaction was fantastic. I'll probably use some of it. Jane's stomach would be scarred from the burns for the rest of her life. She would refuse to shoot further takes of the execution scene, and it was completed with a dummy. In the end, Preminger did use footage from the take in which Jean got burned in the finished film. You can see her body curling forward as the flames shoot up. Jean called her parents that night and told them not to worry. She added, What I really want is to be home for two weeks without a reporter within a hundred miles. In fact, when the shoot was wrapped, Jean was able to go home to Iowa for a full three weeks. At first, it felt like a relief to be back in Iowa. But after a few days, she realized she felt different from her old friends, who were happy to be getting married or going to school. Jean still wanted something more. Before filming on St. Joan was finished, Preminger bought the rights to the novel Bonjour Tristesse, with Jean in mind to star. Preminger locked Jean into this production before he started showing St. Joan to audiences. In April 1957, St. Joan was quietly previewed in New York. It didn't go well. Jean watched as, one by one, members of the audience gave up before the end and headed out the door. This was more than enough to rip off the scab on Jean's insecurities. She was worried. She was also smart enough to rationalize that maybe the movie wasn't for everyone. She'd later admit that it was the longest movie she herself had ever seen. St. Joan had the premiere that counted a month later in Paris at a star-studded gala benefit for a polio charity. Even in this glittery, glad-handing environment, the film was not well-received. Preminger decided to put Jean in front of the sinking ship, sending her on a punishing publicity tour throughout the U.S. and Canada. But the reviews didn't improve. Jean was not spared criticism, but the consensus was that she had been miscast and improperly directed. Maybe the Cinderella publicity buildup had worked too well. There was something about Jean that brought out protective language. She was unbelievable as a warrior and a martyr, the critics seemed to imply, because she was so clearly such a girl-next-door sweetheart. The near-total refusal to grapple with Jean herself and her actual work parallels what happens in the film. Preminger's St. Joan, from a script adapted from Shaw's play by Graham Greene, is more of a straight-faced satire than a tragedy, and it's less concerned with her spiritual plight than with the way Joan of Arc, and by extension religion itself, becomes a tool in games of political one-upmanship. Jean's Joan is a teenage girl with unusual confidence, who believes she's always right because she's never been proven wrong. The movie doesn't seem to really care whether or not Joan is really a messenger of God. It's more interested in how a young woman, an outsider, is progressively broken down by a world in which men make all the rules and keep changing the rules to benefit themselves 
and have no problem destroying her in order to keep their system going. These men see Joan as a playmate, or an innocent in need of protection or subject to seduction, or something to shoo away when she's no longer useful. She becomes determined to show them all by achieving the ultimate revenge, immortality. In other words, it's basically about Hollywood and the experience of many newcomers, like Jean, who arrive full of confidence and get broken over time. Though it's hard to separate out Seberg's actual performance from what we know about what she went through and where she ended up, watching St. Joan, I couldn't imagine another actress of that era doing better in the role. Five years later, while calling St. Joan a film he loved and would make again, Preminger would accept responsibility for its negative reception, particularly regarding Jean's performance. I didn't help her to understand and act the part. Indeed, I deliberately prevented her because I was determined she should be completely unspoilt, he said. I think the instinct to cast a very young, inexperienced girl was right. But now I would work with her for perhaps two years until she understood the part right through. But for their next collaboration, which immediately followed the release of St. Joan, Preminger did not ease up on his young actress. On the contrary, having essentially lost interest in Seberg, on the set of Bonjour Tristesse, Preminger dropped the supposedly productive sadism for out-and-out pointless cruelty. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the spring of 1957, after they had been through the ringer together on the reviews of St. Joan, Preminger gave Jean a brutal assessment of her appeal, telling the now 18-year-old, I don't like the way you talk, walk, or dress. That said, Seberg was already locked into starring in Preminger's next movie, and the director didn't try to replace her. Instead, in June 1957, Preminger sent Jean to the south of France, where they would be shooting Bonjour Tristesse, and he sent her a month before he needed her, so that she had time to rest and prepare. Certainly, Jean needed the break. For Jean, it was a time of mood swings and self-discovery. The negative reviews of St. Joan sent her spiraling with self-doubt, but she also had a new, older, jazz musician boyfriend back in the States, who she was in love with, as only a lonely 18-year-old girl can be in love with a man who is thousands of miles away. She spent her days on the beach, reading from the portable Hemingway, the portable Faulkner, or the portable Proust. She drank pastis at her local cafe, not realizing at first that it was highly alcoholic. 
After her month of romantic solitude, Jean arrived in Paris for fittings at Givenchy for Bonjour Tristesse. The first time she had visited Paris earlier that year, the French had seemed totally baffled by her hair, which had been cut close to her skull for St. Joan. Parisians openly expressed confusion as to whether or not she was a girl or a boy. When Preminger took her to Dior to buy her an evening dress, the salesgirl suggested she wear it with a wig. Six months later, her hair had grown out to a recognizably feminine length. But at Givenchy, it was decided that the crew cut was more chic. So her hair was chopped off again. Shooting of Bonjour, based on Francois Sagan's novel about a teenage girl who becomes jealous of her playboy father's new fiancé and puts into motion a plan to get rid of her, began on location on the French Riviera in a magnificent seaside villa. The setting was idyllic, but Preminger was even more tyrannical than he had been on St. Joan. He berated Jean constantly, pushing her through countless takes after finding excuses why each of the last was unusable. On a day when Jean had informed the crew that she had her period, as was custom for actresses at the time, Preminger scheduled a swimming scene and then insisted that Jean stay in the chilly ocean water all day without a break. Jean refused to let Preminger know that he was getting to her, and she bravely tried to take everything he could throw at her but she confided in a few friends that she was being driven to thoughts of suicide. At one point, she found herself on the balcony of the Carlton Hotel in Cannes, tempted to jump off. Later, she'd say that what kept her from submitting to the impulse was that she didn't want to give Preminger the satisfaction of having broken her. In this way, the shooting of Bonjour Tristesse was transformative for Jean. She started coming into her own and figuring out what kind of actress and woman she could be without Preminger controlling her. And she found a new love. Francois Moroy was a 23-year-old lawyer who Jean met while dining with the Riviera Jet Set. He was part of the same social scene as celebrities such as Brigitte Bardot and Roger Vadim. Francois gave Jean a glimpse at a wild and yet moneyed lifestyle that was incredibly tantalizing to this teenage girl whose professional world was totally dominated by an unkind, unglamorous Austrian. With her newly satisfying personal life giving her courage, Jean began openly rebelling on set. Once, when Preminger told her to repeat a line exactly the way he said it, Jean repeated the line in a mockery of Preminger's accent. The friction between Jean and Preminger, and the rebellion inspired by her new romance, combined to push her towards what, to me, is one of her best performances, and certainly one of the most significant to her iconic image. Bonjour Tristesse doesn't get as much credit as Preminger's previous films for breaking boundaries, but in its illustration of the relationships between Seberg Cecile, her father, played by David Niven, and the women in his life, Bonjour Tristesse is as frankly adult as any film of the late 1950s. Seberg's performance, as a cheerfully decadent teen who is afraid of losing both her father and the freedom he's allowed her to build a life squarely around pleasure is startling. 
with her tiny body and huge eyes, Jean looks like a child, even or especially when she's dressed up in cocktail gowns. But she's able to conjure that very specific attitude of the young woman who gets a thrill out of pretending to be grown up, because she knows she can always go back to being a kid. The unbridled joy Seberg's Cecile evinces, mooning around with a hangover or laughing about her father's inability to be sexually monogamous, makes her sudden shift into shock over the power of her own actions that much more effective. It's the kind of sexy, sparkling, heartbreaking performance that in later years would be enough to turn an ingenue into a major movie star. If this movie had been made today, starring an actress who had more hype behind her than work, that actress would probably win an Oscar. Unfortunately for Jean, it didn't work out that way. After she shot Bonjour Tristesse, Jean didn't know what was going to happen with her career. Technically, Preminger owned her, and he wasn't interested in making any more movies with her. There were no offers coming in from anyone else, so she decided to go to New York and seek more training. Francois came to New York, too. With her world having opened up a bit, Jean was trepidatious about her continued connection to Preminger. He just isn't human, she told an Iowa girlfriend. He buys me beautiful clothes, but never makes me happy on the inside. It's terrible, but sometimes I wish he would just die. These sound less like the complaints of a kept woman than those of a daughter. And yet, based on nothing but her employment contract, there were rumors in the press that Jean and Otto, who was 33 years her senior, were having an affair. Even the new French film critics weren't immune to such gossip. In fact, they devoured it. In a gushing Cahiers de Cinema cover story love letter to Bonjour Tristesse, feature filmmaker Francois Truffaut credited Jean's, quote, perfect sex appeal to Preminger. It is designed, controlled, directed to the nth degree by her director, who is, they say, her fiancé. I wouldn't be surprised, given the kind of love one needs to obtain such perfection. At a much-vaunted Hollywood lunch with Luella Parsons, Jean wittily dismissed the Gossip Queen's suggestion that Preminger's impending divorce would be followed by a marriage to Jean. Of course not, the 19-year-old said. I'm old enough to be his mother. There was also a story in Confidential magazine implying a relationship between Seberg and Preminger. When copies of this issue arrived in Marshalltown, Jean's father went from store to store, buying them all up so he could burn them. In reality, on the set of Bonjour Tristesse, Preminger had fallen in love with Hope Bryce, the film's costume coordinator, who would soon become his third wife. And though this is not something that even the tabloids of the time would have reported, Jean was now living with Francois. Their life together was a seesaw, partially thanks to their unstable financial situation, which had them going to gala parties one night and eating eggs at home the next, and partially due to Jean's mood swings. 
Jean would happily don her beautiful Preminger-purchased dresses to attend parties with John and Jackie Kennedy. She would also frequently wake in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and wail to Francois her fears that she'd never succeed as an actress. It was clear to those close to her that the professional relationship with Preminger was hurting Seberg more than it was helping her. Yes, Preminger had plucked Jean out of obscurity and made her famous, but he also prevented her from getting the training she had been on her way to seeking when she was cast in St. Joan. And his dictatorial directing process had crushed her confidence and her dreams. Francois decided to do something about it. He approached Preminger and worked out a deal to sell Seberg's contract to Columbia Pictures. Preminger held on to an option to be able to borrow Jean for one film per year. But he never worked with her again. He had exhausted all of his interest in her. Later, he'd speak of Jean in almost mystical terms. He had only been able to access a small portion of her personality, he admitted. And he had done what he could to develop that part as an actress, but, quote, the rest of her, which people did not see, was in absolute chaos. She was not cut out for stardom, Preminger believed, but she wanted it so badly that she couldn't see that and ran towards it, even though everyone else knew it would probably destroy her. For her part, Jean was grateful for the opportunity that Preminger had given her, but she was more consumed with hatred for the way he made her feel. Later, she'd say, he used me up like a Kleenex and then threw me away. When you're younger and you're still trying to define your own identity, figure out who you are, it's not easy to live on the shadow of a national monument uh, because you're fighting it. And I'm a rebellious type, and I fought it. That was Jane Fonda in 1985, remembering what it was like to begin an acting career as the daughter of Henry Fonda. For her first years in the business... Jane worked hard to define herself against her father, and sometimes this meant literally fighting with her father in public. Eventually, it meant physically leaving the National Monument behind. When Lee Strasberg accepted Jane Fonda as a student at the Actors Studio, she moved into the Manhattan apartment of Susan Stein, her Vassar roommate and the daughter of Jules Stein, a famous agent. Jane dressed and acted like the Hollywood princess that she was. She'd show up to classes at the actor's studio in a pristine Chanel suit, her hair fixed in a tight Hitchcock blonde bun. She was incredibly nervous, but she committed to Strasbourg's method. One day, after she completed an exercise in class in which she drank an imaginary glass of juice, Strasbourg told her that she had real talent. From there... There was no looking back. Insecure about her abilities and afraid of being dismissed as Henry Fonda's no-talent daughter, Jane decided to prove that she was willing to work. Where everyone else took two classes with Strasbourg each week, Jane took four. 
1959, Jane was signed to a personal contract by her father's friend, the director Joshua Logan. Also under contract to Logan was Warren Beatty, who hadn't been in a movie yet. Jane and Beatty became friends, though they would both become known for taking a volume of lovers. Jane would say that she and Beatty never hooked up. Instead, he told Jane about all of the other women in his life, and she loved hearing his stories. Logan put Fonda in her first film, a high school basketball comedy called The Tall Story, to be shot at Warner Brothers Studio in Los Angeles. Already feeling insecure about what she felt was her fatally round face, Jane's anxieties were stoked when, after a makeup test, Logan told her that she should consider having her jaw broken and rebuilt to set her teeth further back, thus making her cheeks look more sunken. A nose job would help too, he said. She could never become a serious actress with her current nose. And, at Jack Warner's insistence, she was going to have to wear a stuffed bra. These comments exacerbated Jane's anxieties, which caused her bulimia to flare up. During the shoot, she started sleepwalking again, too. One night, she woke up on Sunset Boulevard naked, having made it all the way out to the street without waking up and without anybody stopping her. The Tall Story wasn't a fun film to make, and Jane, like most everyone else working on the movie, correctly suspected that it wouldn't do well. She returned to New York, and after considering a number of other actresses, including Jean Seberg, Logan asked Jane to star in a play called There Was a Little Girl. There Was a Little Girl was widely perceived as a bad play with a good performance in it. Jane was widely praised as the top new star of the 1960 Broadway season. But when Tall's story opened in April and bombed, she wasn't sure of her next move. That spring, at the actor's studio, she started to become close to Andreas Vazinas, a Greek actor-director who was tight with Elia Kazan, and who, though he had been married to a woman, was primarily attracted to men. At the time he met Jane, Andreas was mentoring and coaching Anne Bancroft. Jane envied their relationship, typical of a young woman who has always had trouble connecting to her mythic, powerful father. Jane longed for a man to come into her life and take it over. The turning point came when Bancroft fell in love with Mel Brooks. It was difficult for Andreas to work his magic on an actress when there was another man vying for her attention. Andreas asked Bancroft to choose between Mel and him, and Anne chose Mel, although she and Andreas remained friends for decades. This left Andreas with a lot of free time and an opening for a woman to whom to lend his services. As soon as Jane got rid of her current boyfriend, Andreas moved into her apartment and totally took over her life. He dressed her, he did her hair and makeup, he coached her for her parts and advised her on which opportunities she should go after. Their relationship was romantic, if sexually dysfunctional. 
I don't think Jane enjoyed sex, or maybe she just didn't enjoy sex with me, Andreas later said. Of course, she knew I was gay, but we didn't talk about it. Jane would later write about how her severe bulimia had caused her to become cut off from her sexuality during this period. Andreas would say later that he realized Jane was seriously bulimic the first time he casually put his hand on her knee, and his hand came back wet. He had worked with malnourished vets after the war, and their bodies were always seeping water. He'd soon come to understand the extent to which Jane's obsession with perfecting her body controlled her life. She was self-conscious about every aspect of her body, including her quote-unquote fat ankles, which Andreas tried to help her shrink by wrapping them tightly in brine-soaked bandages. It's important to note, it wasn't just Jane who felt pressure to be incredibly thin and to resort to destructive habits to get there. This was the culture she was born into, and an obsession with maintaining a trim frame by any means necessary was common amongst the women Henry Fonda chose as wives. Jane's mother had impressed on her the importance of thinness, and her ex-stepmother Susan and her current stepmother, Afdera the Italian Countess, were both also bulimic. Afdera would say that a lot of women she knew did what they had to do in order to look good in clothes although no one talked about it. At the time, Mr. and Mrs. Henry Fonda were friends with John and Jackie Kennedy, and Mrs. Fonda assumed Mrs. Kennedy was bulimic too. Aftera urged Jane to volunteer for Kennedy's presidential campaign, but Jane wasn't interested in politics in 1960. Instead, she started working on a new play, Invitation to a March, written by Arthur Lawrence. On opening night, Jane learned that her childhood friend, Bridget Hayward, had killed herself. Less than a year after Margaret Sullivan, Bridget's mother and Jane's father's ex-wife, had also committed suicide. So many women around Jane had done this. She began to fear that she would be unable to resist the lure of suicide herself. Her angst did not improve a couple of years later, when Marilyn Monroe was found dead of an apparent suicide, intentional or otherwise. Andreas stepped in to try to protect Jane from herself. After he became aware of her binging and purging, he started following her into the bathroom after they ate at restaurants. When Jane was prevented from actually throwing up her food, her bulimia would express itself in other ways. She'd take extra ballet classes, for instance, exercising for four hours a day. In 1960, Jane performed what was called a private moment about her eating disorder for her actor studio class. A private moment was performed in front of the class, but it was meant to be helpful to the performer alone, a way for them to work on unlocking something inside. Jane's moment was implicitly about her eating disorder. It involved her pacing around and around a chair covered in newspapers and meant to represent a toilet until she had broken out into a cold sweat. When it was over, Strasberg told her that she had, quote-unquote, 
problems with tension and that she wouldn't know herself until she worked them out. Shortly after that, Andreas helped her audition to graduate from Lee's classes to the fully-fledged actor's studio. For the audition, she performed a scene from Butterfield 8, in which her character threatened to slit her wrists with a broken wine glass. Unexpectedly, at the audition, Jane brought the shard of glass to her throat, mimicking Jane's own mother's suicide. That night, Jane lied to Andreas and told him that she had found her mother's dead body. Jane was accepted into the actor's studio. She continued to audition for plays, but she had more luck making movies. She had three in release in 1962, including Walk on the Wild Side and The Chapman Report, for which her services were loaned out by Joshua Logan. She had to get out of her contract with him in order to make any real money and have any real freedom. In order to get into a position to be able to do that, Jane had to create opportunities for herself by chasing fame. In the early 60s, America's biggest celebrities were the Kennedys, both the president and the first lady, followed by Marilyn Monroe and Marlon Brando. Jane was not in that echelon yet, but she wanted to be. She particularly idolized Marilyn. Still, Jane was famous in a way that seemed outsized, considering what she'd done as an actress. She was frequently photographed for fashion spreads and stories about her. At one point, she posed for photographer Peter Bosch as various movie goddesses, just as Marilyn had done before and Dorothy Stratton would later do. In interviews, Jane would make news by freely airing dirty laundry about her upbringing and her famous father. Any man who was 57 years old and has gone through four wives... Jane said of Henry in one interview, must be very unhappy. Her father fired back in a Saturday evening post interview in which he said, it's all right for her to think it, if that's what she thinks, but it's not all right for her to say so in interviews. After all, I'm her father. It's disrespectful. It was as if she was testing how much power Henry Fonda really had and how much power she had, and whether he still had the power to help or hurt her. This game reached a milestone when Jane posed topless for Vogue, and her father had the spread killed before it reached the newsstands. In 1962, a year in which Jane Fonda was crowned Miss Army Recruiting by the Pentagon, Jane and Henry Fonda became estranged and she also shrugged off surrogate father figure Joshua Logan. When MGM wanted to cast Jane in a comedy about young marrieds called Period of Adjustment, they agreed to give her the cash she needed to buy out her contract with Logan. Logan felt betrayed, but at this point, he had no influence over Jane, a fact she was happy to report to the New York Times. He's a friend of the family, but not enough of a friend to pay me what I'm worth. Jane said of Logan, I feel fortunate I've been able to buy out my contract. I paid for my freedom. 
That's the important thing. By late 1962, Andreas was the only man in Jane's life who she'd listened to. She put on an act that they were happy and in love, but privately, she wasn't sure what the future held for them. When she made period of adjustment with director George Roy Hill, Hill wouldn't allow Andreas to visit her on set. It felt good to work without Andreas's ghost direction and hyper-attentive scrutiny, but then when she was hired to make a movie in Europe and Andreas wasn't going to be able to go with her, she asked him to marry her, to solidify their bond while she was away. He refused. He said that he didn't want to be kept by her. But he stuck around. Jane and Andreas's relationship was documented by D.A. Pennebaker in a film called Jane, which also documented the production of a bad play Jane was in and which Andreas directed, ironically titled The Fun Couple. In Pennebaker's movie, we see a fascinating portrait of 24-year-old Jane Fonda. She's painfully thin. In a couple of scenes, she's wearing a skimpy bikini in which her rib cage protrudes disturbingly far over her waist. And yet her face looks a little bit bloated and a little bit babyish. Nervous, apparently hopped up on dexedrine and chain-smoking, she gives off the vibe of a little girl who desperately wants to be taken seriously as an adult woman. This extends to the way she treats Andreas. She's constantly showing him excessive affection, making a great to-do of his every-kind gesture. Not that he makes many. The overall picture you get of Andreas is of a comically overdramatic and overbearing Svengali. But what may be most valuable about the documentary is the way that it presents a theatrical company's painful self-delusion as they struggle to improve a play that seems to have been doomed from the start, only to fail miserably. Jane Fonda's silent sadness upon learning that the play is going to close embarrassingly early is devastating. For what it's worth, Jane does not mention the Pennebaker film in her autobiography, and the fun couple gets one mention as part of the single sentence on Andreas, who she describes as her acting coach. She totally skips the details of their personal relationship, a relationship which is evidently very complicated by the way it's depicted in Jane. With fun couple, Jane began to realize that Maybe she didn't have the raw talent for stage acting that some of her classmates at the actor studio had. What she did have was an it factor that the camera responded to. After her next movie, Sunday in New York, that quality and Jane's movie stardom were impossible to ignore. Sunday in New York is a pastel-colored early 60s sex comedy in the same ballpark as Pillow Talk, which came out four years earlier, but much more literal. It's set in roughly the same universe as early season Mad Men, a Manhattan in which Don Draper types schedule Sunday morning trysts at their bachelor pads, while still trying to ensure the purity of so-called nice girls. Jane played Eileen, a much more stylish version of a Peggy Olsen type, who is comfortable in the new frontier of the professional world, 
but has not yet squared away the sexual mores of her upbringing with the apparent expectations of the men she meets. In her first big scene, she calls herself the only 22-year-old virgin alive. Apparently, she keeps getting dumped by boyfriends when she demurs on going to bed with them. So she goes to her playboy brother's apartment in Manhattan to ask for advice. Is a girl that's been going around with a fellow a reasonable length of time supposed to go to bed with him or not? What kind of a question is that to ask? Well, it keeps coming up all the time. Well, it's not supposed to. Well, it does. And I need some sort of an answer quick. What do you mean, quick? Tempest is fugiting, and I'd like to make my mind up. Eileen, I'm, I must tell you, I'm very surprised to hear you talk like this. I'm a little surprised myself. Yeah, but that's not the kind of subject you can bring up with strangers. Well, shall I repeat the question? Is a girl... No. She is not supposed to go to bed with him. Nice footwork. You should have been a lawyer. By the time Sunday in New York had come out, Jane's previous film roles included a desperate girl-turned-hooker-turned-informant in Walk on the Wild Side, a possibly frigid widow in The Chapman Report, and a newlywed who is hysterically afraid to have sex with her husband in the Tennessee Williams adaptation period of adjustment. While Jane literally represented a new Hollywood generation, her on-screen persona embodied an uneasiness, bordering on paralysis in Hollywood, regarding changing attitudes towards sex attitudes which the studios would someday have to grapple with, both in terms of the content they offered and the censorship standards they hewed to. As late as 1963, when Sunday in New York was released, a full decade after Otto Preminger's film The Moon is Blue struck an important blow against the production code by becoming a hit without the censor's seal of approval, the studios were still trying to delay that someday through making movies that acknowledged sex while focusing on characters like those Fonda had played, for whom sex is a source of pain, confusion, and anxiety. It's also in these early performances that we first get a sense of another aspect of Jane's screen persona. And this is one that she'd carry with her really through her whole career. She's intense. She rarely underplays or undersells a line reading, Instead, she gives everything she's asked to do on screen what seems like everything she's got. And then, when the movie reaches a dramatic climax, she somehow finds more to give. This is not to say that she overacts. It's just that there's always energy emitting from her on screen. She's almost always the most active presence in any given scene. This is in contrast to Jean Seberg, who in her early films spent much time watching and being watched, whose characters often seem to have ambiguous motives and inscrutable thoughts and feelings, and who often failed or purposefully refused to give clues as to what these characters wanted. To this point, there's no way you could watch a Jane Fonda performance and not know what her character wanted. By the standards of Hollywood, this made Jane Fonda a much better movie star. When Sunday in New York was released, it would take Jane's career to the next level. But before that happened, she was unsatisfied with the opportunities available to her. 
She didn't want to play another frigid sex kitten in another toothless play or Hollywood movie. One night, she met for dinner in New York with Jean Seberg, who told her about her experiences living in Paris, where she had just worked with a new experimental filmmaker on a movie that was sort of a tribute to American gangster movies and was sort of totally indescribable. They had worked without a complete script, shooting on the fly on the streets of Paris with a handheld camera. It was, Jean said, insane, but exciting. Jane envied Jean. That sounded like a challenge that she felt she needed. And then Jane was approached by René Clément, a French director who wanted her to star opposite Alaine Delon in an MGM movie called Joy House, being made in Paris. Jane figured this would be a chance to step outside of Andreas's control and also maybe get a taste of the insane freedom Jean had told her of. Before she left, Jane told Andreas to move out of her apartment. She needed them to separate, Jane told him, because I can't keep looking in the mirror and keep hearing you tell me the truth about myself 24 hours a day. Within days, the gossip columns were reporting the split. Jane earns $250,000 a year. Andreas works when he can, wrote Sheila Graham. This type of mismatch rarely works out. For Jane, Joy House was an opportunity to break from Andreas, but also from Henry Fonda. She could, finally, as she put it, separate myself from my father's long shadow, separate him with an ocean. We will get to Jean Seberg's insane but exciting experience with Jean-Luc Godard and Jane Fonda's reinvention across the ocean next week. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the podcast, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you haven't already, subscribing to the show on iTunes and rating and reviewing us there really helps other people find it. You can also find us on Spotify and virtually every other place to find podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.